Open your Bibles again, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. We're talking about this morning the consequences of disobedience. And let me say that the interpretation that you give to this chapter is going to determine how you interpret the New Testament. It's going to determine in large measure how you live the Christian life. And it's very important that we get this particular section of Scripture interpreted correctly. It seems to be pretty forthright, and yet there are a lot of different ideas about how we should take these opening chapters of Genesis. So the consequences of disobedience, and we take a short verse from the New Testament as a reminder, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here is our outline for today. We're going to look at the temptation that the enemy brings to Eve and to Adam. Their consideration, particularly Eve's consideration of the offer that's given. Then the revelation that comes. And finally, expulsion from the garden. Another way to outline the chapter simply might be the bait, the bite, and the boot right out of paradise. And we want to be certain that we understand the way the devil tempts us because he's still using the same strategy today. So when we come to the opening chapters of Genesis, what are we to think? What does modern man think? Is this just a Jewish myth along the lines of the Gilgamesh epic, the Babylonian creation account? And is this just one story among many about where it all came from? Or would we say it's an attempt by primitive man to explain the cosmos in pre-scientific terms? He's doing about the best he can because that's all he knows. Or would we say it's a clever allegory to explain the existence of evil? Maybe it's a story that would tell us where evil came from. Or is it some kind of religious message from God? There's some principle here. He wants us to understand to resist temptation, but it's really unrelated to time and space history. In other words, it's truth only for the eyes of faith. And that would be the opinion of some. But we would say that the third chapter of Genesis as the other opening chapters of Genesis describe a literal blow-by-blow account of what is taking place at a particular time. If we had the calendar going back that far, it would be on the calendar, at a particular place on the face of the earth. And if you don't see it that way, then you may as well toss most of the New Testament because the New Testament interprets this as a literal account of literal temptation of real people. And it relates to us in that it is connected to us and we will see. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty one. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Now that is all who are in Christ shall be made alive. And then 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now let's get right into the temptation. When the serpent spoke to Eve, who was really doing the talking? In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, we see that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. But how can a serpent speak? Well, a serpent can speak supernaturally, just like everything else in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea, the virgin birth, the resurrection of the dead, all the miracle stories. You can't really approach the Bible with scissors and paste You have to either believe what's there, that God is supernatural, and for some reason God allows the serpent to be possessed by the devil, and the devil speaks through the serpent. We don't know why God would do something like that, but we do see the outworking of what happens. Why a serpent and not a peacock or a zebra or a cocky monkey? would have seemed to have been appropriate for the devil. Well, we don't know a lot about that, but we do know that the serpent is clever. I saw one disappear one day right in front of my eyes. I was jogging down Shoal Creek Valley in Alabama, and I saw a kid on a bicycle who had stopped to look at something on the side of the road, and he signaled to me to hurry up, and I picked up the pace a little bit. And when I got there, he was looking at a big timber rattler over on the brush, right on the side of the road. And he said, you stay here and watch the snake. I'm going to get my gun. There is the enmity from the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent. So I was standing there watching a distance of about five feet, and the snake literally disappeared. I couldn't say I saw it move. It was kind of like it just evaporated. And that was the end of that. So the serpent we see from the New Testament Jesus speaking, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. John Wycliffe, in his translation, says, Be weary as serpents. So the devil chooses this weary, clever animal and begins to speak through him. Now, I don't know that Eve realized that a snake shouldn't be talking. So she enters right into conversation with the snake. There are a lot of new things coming at you in the Garden of Eden, and she joins the conversation. He asks the question, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, right there, Satan is implying something about God's character. He's suggesting that God is withholding something good from Adam and Eve. We know that's not the case. We have a Bible, Psalm 84:11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, we know that God is good because we have the testimony of scripture and that of many Christians, and many of us have seen or shall I say have recognized how God's goodness has worked out in our lives over time. 
But what about Eve? How would she have known that God was not withholding something good from her? Well, I suppose she could look around to see where she was. She was in paradise. And God had provided everything that they would need. And it was a very pleasant environment. Just imagine. No frustrations. No sicknesses. None of that sort of thing. Not even any problems in interpersonal relationships. Of course, the possibilities there are somewhat diminished for them, just two people getting along with each other. But she's in a perfect environment in paradise instead of focusing on everything good that God has done. What does she focus on? The fruit. The fruit that is forbidden. One fruit out of all the fruit. And when she responds, she leaves out the word all, signifying that she's already losing sight of God's goodness. Probably many Christians can fall into that same trap. And sometimes we don't even remember what God did for us, what good God has given. Back in, say, 1999. What did He do for you in 1999? Saved you from the world collapse of Y2K, but, yeah, I mean, what specifically did He do? I look back in my... Thanksgiving list. Some of you are here in 1999. And there are a lot of things. This is condensed down from about a thousand, I guess, that where I had just written every day, most every day for the year. But this was just the list for Thanksgiving. 72 items in this list. And it's a reminder to me that God was doing a lot of things back then that I forgot about. That was the year that we moved to Texas. And that was a busy year for the Lord in our lives. And occasionally I go back in those years and I thank the Lord for what He did. Truly, He is good. And I want to leave a legacy of gratitude to grandchildren, to children, and to grandchildren. I may not have been the greatest pastor, but... I was the greatest, uh, most grateful man, perhaps, in the state of Texas. And there is a record of it. And that's encouraging to me that I don't want to look at just um, having the flu, not feeling so well. It's been a long time since that happened. But I want to be focused on all the good that God is doing so I won't be susceptible to temptation. Because when you lack gratefulness for God's goodness and you have a lack of contentment, and you have some idea of the restrictiveness of God, then you become easy picking for the enemy's temptation. And he's going to focus on that one thing that you really think you should have that you don't have, and you forget about all the other things. Let me remind you that when God withholds something from you, it's either for your protection or for your provision. And it could be both. Now, why do you think the devil singled out the woman for his temptation? We have to be very careful here. I think he wanted to bypass Adam and get Eve to usurp Adam's authority. It kind of reads like Eve did not get the command directly from God. She got it through her husband. He was the one with whom the covenant 
was made. So perhaps the devil is thinking, well, since she didn't get it directly from the mouth of God, maybe she would be a little more easy picking in this thing than would the man. He feels the responsibility of being the head of the covenant. So he said, hey girl, at your age, you don't have to have anybody telling you what to do. You're free in Jesus to make your own decisions. Have you considered this? And of course, she is open to the consideration. He's using the same line today. And we see something of the mental thought process that's being used here as she considers the possibilities of what's being offered. She makes her reply to the devil's inquiry in verse 3. Compare that, if you're in your Bible, with what God said back in chapter 2 and verse 17. Because she changes it a little bit. She said, he said, don't eat this forbidden fruit, don't even touch it, or lest you will die. So already she's casting God in a little more repressive light. Don't even touch it. He didn't really say that. We have to be careful about changing God's Word. Well, after boldly contradicting what God did say, the devil suggests two rather vague promises that will happen if she eats the fruit that will come true. First is their eyes will be opened. I guess as in, hey girl, open up your eyes. If you can't see this, you're not going to be able to get along in this world very well. She's, she's, he's assuming, uh, presuming that she wants her to presume she's missing something and there is a bright, beautiful world out there to experience, but you can't see it until you eat this fruit. Then the second thing he says, let's take a look at those. Their eyes would be opened. And then the second thing, they would be like God, knowing good and evil whatever that means. That's kind of vague. They're already like God. They're created in His image. They ought to know that whatever God says to do is good and whatever He says not to do would be the evil. But the devil specializes in half-truths, as we will see. So Eve considers the offer and continues to think about it, and soon she reached some firm conclusions. The fruit of the tree was good for food. It was delightful to the eyes. The fruit was desirable to make one wise. Remember when we studied the body, the mind, and the will? There was the desire for the fruit and the mental thought that I don't need God telling me what to do. I don't need an authority in my life. And then she exercises the will and she eats the fruit, and there's the bait. Bingo, there's the bite. But the sin came not when she bit into the fruit, but when she bought into the idea that God was not right and the enemy was right. Sin is in your heart as a thought before it finds an avenue into what you do. And we've said often you have about four seconds to do something with that thought before it finds its way into the fulfillment of temptation. Before the bait turns into the bite, you've got about four seconds to get another thought 
in there squeezing out that wrong thought. And that's the reason it's important to have Scripture. Have Scripture in your pocket. Have Scripture in your heart. Whip that Scripture out and use it as a weapon against the enemy just as Christ does. Incidentally, the apple gets about as much bad press as the innkeeper at Christmas time. But the Scripture mentions neither. And perhaps the tradition comes from the Latin word malum, apple, being very similar to the Latin word malum for evil. Whatever it is, we always see them biting into the apple. Could have been any kind of fruit. Now let's take a closer look at the enemy strategy. And here's where we want to be certain, young people, that we're not fooled because he'll be using the same strategy against you that he did against Eve. He might dress it up a little bit in some modern terms. First, verse 1, plant seeds of doubt. Satan likes to plant seeds of doubt about God. That's where he would use the whole evolutionary scheme of things to say God didn't create it. That's just an allegory. It doesn't really count for much. But the Scripture indicates that God did create it. So you see Satan come in that very first verse. Hey, yo, girl, did God say you really can't eat any of the good fruit in this garden? What a bummer. Sounds like legalism to me. And he's beginning to sell her on the idea that God is tight. He's restrictive. He doesn't want you to have any fun. He wants to keep a tight rein on everything. Second question the absolute truth of God's Word. Here's the focus of the enemy attack, enemy attack even now. What? You're telling me that the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord? Why, I never saw that. There must be some mistake. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Well, that's half-truth. It's not just an intellectual belief. It is a committal belief middle of your whole life. And a lot of times people here believe in Jesus and, well, yeah, I believe there's a Jesus, but there's no committal whatsoever, no commitment of the life to him. Satan says, you shall not surely die as he hammers against the absolute truth of God's word. Even if you get a little sick, you're not going to die. And it would be worth it for this kind of excitement. Satan says nothing is absolutely bad. It's all relative. Take this R-rated movie, for instance. It's not nearly as bad as that X-rated. It only has three bad scenes in it. And they only take the Lord's name in vain 13 times. And you can kind of filter that out. Did you know that not even TV Guardian will filter out the worldview? I trust that many of you will be able to come Wednesday evening at Geneva School in Bernie to hear Steve Lawson talk about worldview because I can assure you it will be a great message. And that PG-13, you could show that film in Sunday School. No problem. It's all relative. Nothing is absolutely bad. And you get the idea in the church today, you want to be loving and kind immorality is not even all bad. You just got to accept some of those sort of things, and there you go. Well, number three, undermine confidence in the goodness of God. 
For God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like gods or like God. That means you become sophisticated. Have you ever looked at the definition of sophisticate? It means to alter deceptively, to deprive of genuineness, to adulterate. Here, try this. It tastes good. You've been under some pressure lately. You need the new anti-stress diet. Breakfast, a half grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk, lunch, four ounces of lean broiled chicken breast, one cup steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie, and herb tea. Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreo cookies, one quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge. Dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, a large mushroom and pepperoni pizza, a large pitcher of root beer, three Milky Ways, and the entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. You will feel good. Your stress will be gone. There are a lot of ideas that are promoted now of things that will make you feel good, things that will make you look good. Sensual dress will make you look good, but it sends a wrong advertising message. There are things you can, you can smoke the magic weed and it'll make you feel good for a little while, but then you get busted and you have to go to life dynamics. You gotta really, gotta really check these things out that Satan offers where he says, there's nothing really bad about this. Everybody's doing it and there's something here for you. You're gonna be included in the gang. You're gonna be, uh, an adult. You're going to know how to have fun without getting into too much trouble. And you're going to really enjoy life. But then he doesn't say too much about what's coming down the line. Well, here's one, number four. Oh, excuse me. We're still under number three here. Encourage false expectations. That's just what he did for Eve. That's just what he will do for us. And then make false promises. Uh, this will be the result if you will just participate. Then we come to uh, number four. Question God's character. God has cheated you. Look at that brown banana and that rotten orange. This is the kind of stuff God wants you to eat. Why, well, he probably eats the good stuff all the time. And you need to be eating the good stuff too. He's holding out on you. God just really doesn't have your best interests at heart. Look at those old-fashioned parents God has given you. They don't know what's going on in the world today. Why should I listen to them? I know what's good for me. Same message as what is coming there to Eve. Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. I can qualify for that one. That's the reason I've got to check the Scripture very carefully and maybe some wise counsel as well to be sure that I'm not just hanging on to my own thoughts here, my own way that's right in my own eyes. Everybody's way is right in their own eyes. Proverbs 28:26, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Our culture says if you don't follow your own heart, you're worse than a fool. You're a hypocrite. But we see in the Scripture that it's a fool who trusts in his own heart 
especially in matters of relationships. Be very careful. Well, God is too strict. Verse 5 there, go ahead and eat the fruit. God doesn't want you to have any fun like He does. He eats that fruit all the time. What should have been Eve's response to this? Wait just a minute. Let me go get my husband. He deals with all the snakes and the door-to-door salesman. And let me just get him in here and he will take care of this. But by that time, she's thinking, I don't need the help. I don't need the counsel. I sure don't need my husband telling me what to do at my age. I can make my own decisions. She's about one day old at this point. (laughs) So, based on her misinformed considerations, she took some of the fruit and ate it, and nothing happened. The snake was right. How about that? Nothing happened. See there? God's judgment doesn't always come instantly. Sometimes it does. So she took some of the fruit she gave to her husband, and he ate, and then all of a sudden we see something else coming in. Francis Schaeffer reminds us that, quote, temptation is extremely hard to resist when it's bound up in the man-woman relationship, end of quote. Mark that one down, young people and older people and everybody. Temptation is extremely hard to resist when it's bound up with the man-woman relationship. Here's something else you want to watch for as we're just uh, cruising through pretty rapidly here. Be careful about setting up a hierarchy of big sins and little sins. Did you know last Sunday he went to the ball game instead of going to church? And all I did was eat the forbidden fruit. Sometimes we look at what we do and kind of compare it with what others do. But the Scripture says if you violate God's law in one point, you have become guilty of all. Do you see here that if sin is pretty serious business, then we need a pretty serious Savior. Well, we come to Revelation. Suddenly, in verse 7, it was revealed to Adam and Eve what they had done. Bam! Like an avalanche. They are hit with a ton of guilt. They felt the shame of their nakedness and tried to cover themselves with fig leaves sewn together. Different Bibles through the years have translated what they made in different terms, sometimes an apron, sometimes it's a loincloth. We have the Breeches Bible of 1608, so named because the word was translated breeches out of fig leaves. Whatever they did, it didn't work very well. You say, that's pretty odd. People run around without any clothes on before the fall. What kind of deal is that? Well, that's not so unusual. Little children do it all the time. If mother's not watching pretty carefully, they're out there parading around in their birthday suit somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have any sin. They were in a state of innocence. Little children are born with original sin, but they don't know that. They have to be taught what to do and what not to do. 
Then in verse 8, all of a sudden we hear God coming. Now God is everywhere all the time, but here is a special anthropomorphic manifestation. They can hear God coming through the forest and they try to hide themselves because they felt guilt and fear. And here we see, as we've noted many times, the Trinity again. The Father is in the garden seeking lost sinners. 4,000 years later, Christ is roaming the hills of Galilee and Capernaum seeking lost sinners. 2,000 years after that, the Holy Spirit is roaming the earth seeking lost sinners through us. And we have the privilege of being the medium that conveys the message. What a great privilege for us. So when we're confronted with our disobedience, what do we usually do? It's not my fault. We start the blame game. And Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. And if you'd asked the serpent, he would probably have blamed God. Here kind of in a nutshell is man's condition in sin. He distorts the truth, he blames others, and then he ultimately blames God when he can't get anybody else to take the blame. Now we find out something about the consequences of disobedience. Verses 14 through 19, there was the internal consequence of guilt. There was the external consequence of an abnormal world now. And then there was the eternal consequence of spiritual death and separation from God and everything good for all eternity. The joys and delights of working in a beautiful garden have now been lost. Now you're going to be out there in the field with the thorns and the thistles uh, working by the sweat of your brow. And we thought, well, we're pretty smart in modern technology. We can beat that deal. We don't have to be out in the field. If we are, we can be in an air-conditioned John Deere. But now we get stress-related problems. Ulcers, carpal tunnel syndrome, adrenal exhaustion, chronic fatigue syndrome, clinical depression. We might have been better off out in the field, just like our great-grandfathers. Well, nevertheless, there's a remedy for those things, too. Then we come to the curse that God places on the serpent and on the ground. Notice everybody's judged, but only the serpent and the ground are cursed. And with the serpent, we see a double representation of the serpent, the snake, and of Satan. So let's look and see uh, what's going to be happening here. First, in verses 14 and 15, the serpent would crawl in the dust and eat dust. Lick dust is a biblical term from the Old Testament. It means utter humiliation and defeat. And perhaps that's where the cowboys got the term, he bit the dust. Well, the seed of woman is going to deal a wound to the seed of the serpent. And he, the devil, is going to bite the dust. But not yet. A lot of work to be done before that happens. So here are the curses being passed out here, but in the midst of judgment, we find mercy. It's the protoevangelium. And we've looked at this before in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. 
God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the first mention of the good news of Christ, the Savior, in the Old Testament. Then the woman is going to experience pain and sorrow, particularly in childbearing. She would be drawn to her husband, but he would have authority over her. In ancient and modern heathenism, that authority became a despotic rule. And the woman is forced into slavery. In many instances, sometimes even in certain places in Christendom. But that's not the way God intended to be. As Cody mentioned, the man is to serve uh, the woman and love her as Christ loved the church. And true New Testament Christianity sets the woman free all over the world to be able to fulfill the role that she is given and love her husband and love her children. Genesis 3.16, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire to be, shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Notice the King James Version says, Thy sorrow and thy conception. The Jewish Publication Society Version, based on the Masoretic text, says, Thy pain and thy travail. The Septuagint says, Thy sorrows and thy anguish. Dr. Herbert Leupold, in his classic commentary on Genesis, believes that this consequence for the woman includes mental and spiritual pain as well as physical pain, and not just physical pain connected with childbearing. You can think of the pain and anguish that a mother may suffer as she's concerned about sons and daughters. Well, it's true our young couple didn't die at that moment, but all of their offspring, including they themselves, did die, except Enoch and Elijah. That's physical death. But there's also spiritual death, sometimes referred to as this present death, and then there's eternal death. Now, here's something very important as we're drawing toward the close here. What are the consequences of Adam's disobedience in these last two categories, spiritual death and eternal death? Some say none whatsoever. 400 A.D. Pelagius, a popular Christian teacher in Rome, began to teach that Adam's sin had no relationship to us whatsoever because he couldn't swallow the fact that God would tell us to do something that we are unable to do. So God commands us to obey him. We must be able to obey him. A child, he said, is not born with any original sin. He's just like Adam before the fall. And he gets to choose. And Adam just set a bad example for everybody. But Christ set a good example. So if you will follow the good example instead of the bad example, you'll come out pretty well. Now, a lot of people still hold to that today, but that is not in the Scripture. So much for the necessity of the atonement, if that's what you believe. But Pelagius was declared a heretic by the Council of Carthage in 411 A.D. Here's a second possibility. Sin did not bring about spiritual death, but sickness. And you might have a bad cold, 
and you might have cancer, but the medicine is the gospel, so you just take the medicine and you'll be well. You're not spiritually dead, you're just sick. And you have the ability to take a dose of medicine, so take it. We're offering it to you. But there's some problems with that as well. And then we come to number three. An unbeliever is not sick. He is absolutely stone cold dead in his trespasses and sins. And that seems to be what the Scripture indicates uh, in Ephesians 2, if you want to look at it in your Scripture. I'm going to read uh, five verses here, four verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says to the Ephesians, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that looks pretty clear, because if you're dead, you're not just sick. And it's going to take something a little more powerful than a dose of medicine to raise someone from the dead. Regeneration is the biblical term. But here's another scripture, Romans 3. As it is written, and it's written in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Now, they might do good in building a ballpark for the Little League, but no good that counts with God for the remission of sin. And the path of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. There might be a lot of religion, but no true fear of God. You know why they don't fear God? Because it is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Do we keep preaching the cross? Absolutely. Because that's going to be the means by which someone gets awakened. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Before he can take the medicine, he's got to be brought to life. Then he takes the medicine. Humanistic pride doesn't like the idea that salvation is of the Lord. Well, the last section quickly, expulsion, shame, fear, and mistrust. And despite their sin, though, God makes a provision for Adam and Eve. He shed innocent blood, and He made garments for them to wear out of the skins of animals. Now, here's another picture for the future. 
4,000 years later, someone else has to die because of Adam's sin. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And He was slain so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. we got plenty of clothes, but we need our guilt covered. And we see that what God is doing for us and the explanation of it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Well, the final punishment is found in verses 23 and 24. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden and all of their descendants died. But it's not over yet. We've come a long way since then. We understand a lot more than they did. And we understand from the Protoevangelium that all the world is divided into two camps. Your seed, he says to the woman, and your seed, he says to the serpent. The redeemed who love God, that would be her seed. And the reprobate who love self, that would be your seed. We're just kind of making a loose category here of everyone and labeling it labeling it because if they're in Christ, the seed of the woman, then they are the redeemed who love God. Now here's the question as we close. How do you know which group you're in? Because according to Christ, there are many in group two who were convinced that they were in group one. Many will come to me on that day, he says. Lord, Lord, we did all these good things. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, here's a way that you can tell. 1 John 5:13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. If you have some doubt about that this morning, come talk to me after the service. It's pretty serious business. Drive carefully on the way home. What things have been written? Everything in the little book of 1 John. That's a real good place to determine if you have the fruit of salvation in your life. It says a lot of things, and I'll give you just a sample of one thing and encourage you to study through the little book. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that He might destroy the works of the devil. What do you do when you practice something? How about when you practice a piano? How about if you practice tennis? Well, you practice something to get better at it. It's something you're involved with, something you do. Now, we all slip into sin. But if I'm practicing sin, and that's the direction of my life, even in my heart, then I'm on pretty weak ground as far as what Scripture says. Oh, it says a lot of other things like obeying the commandments and loving your brother and all kinds of interesting things I would encourage you to read. But right now, I want to close in prayer, and I would encourage you to think about the condition of your own heart.
Have you ever really made? I know everybody here would probably say, yeah, I believe that there is a Jesus and he died for our sin. But have you ever really made that commitment of your life, your whole life to him? This would be a good time at the beginning of a new year, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we look in the Scripture, we see the seriousness of sin. As through one man came death to everyone. Spiritual death, horrible, eternal death, separated from you. But we thank you that also through one man, the second Adam, came the resurrection from the dead. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this earth, for setting an example for us as to how we should live, but then providing the guilt offering for our sin and sending then your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to live that life that we can't live on our own. We praise your holy name. We pray that we might be such grateful people that we wouldn't even be thinking about the things that we don't have or we can't have, but we'd be thinking about all the good that you have done for us and continue to do every day. Lord, I pray for every young person in this room today. I pray, Lord, that they might look to you, that they might not hear the enemy voices calling, they might not listen to it, and that they might be steeped in the Scripture and wise counsel. And we pray for those who are making uh, big decisions in their lives even now. Father, thank you for many opportunities that will come our way in this new year. And thank you most of all that you've chosen us to be the medium that you would use to share this good news about the seed of woman that's going to deal a fatal wound to the enemy. So I pray we'd be quick to share the gospel, that we would daily preach the gospel to ourselves, and uh, Lord, help us to open our eyes to opportunities that are all about us. Pray that you would uh, guide us now as we uh, pray together and remind us of things that we really need to pray about. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.